Welcome to The Last Supper, your weekly podcast about art in Asia. I'm your host, Oscar Venhuis. Every weekend I sit down and release an episode bringing new perspectives and engaging dialogues with emerging and established artists, galleries, curators and collectors in Asia. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters Last Supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. Before we begin this podcast, I'd like to announce the inaugural event of the Supper Club 224, which will feature over 20 international and regional galleries. Supper Club is a week-long event that is a hybrid between an art fair, a third space together, and a hub for engagement with contemporary art. The Supper Club event is initiated by Willem Molesworth and Weisabella Chung of the PhD group, Alex Chen of the Shop House and is co-organized with the French Club in Hong Kong and will be curated by independent curator Anchi Lee. The exhibition space will be adapted by Bo Architects and the Supper Club is open from the 25th of March until the 30th of March 2024. More information can be found on www.supperclubhongkong.com. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Martin Miller, a Hong Kong-based artist and researcher. Our discussion spanned a very broad range of topics, starting with an exploration of image ontology. We delved into Dr. Miller's research involving AI models and the ability to detect and reinterpret patterns in Shamsir Po, a busy district in Hong Kong. We also explored the intriguing connection between AI hallucinations and human imagination. Welcome, Marty. Let's delve straight into today's podcast. You just completed your PhD research, and one of the subjects you've been looking into is image ontology. Yeah. Before we talk about ontology, can you explain to me what it is? Oh, man. The study of, um, well, in this case, then I put visual image ontology, how images come to exist, how it is that they have a structure maybe that could be interpretable based on not a single origin, but like maybe a process of, you know, device use and mechanical design and then aesthetic choices and that delivers predictable results. It's like, what do we think of as an important result that comes from experiencing pictures? And then how much do we consider the mechanical implications and the, you know, human subjectivities in that interpretation rather than just seeing when you see that picture and you say what do you see oh you see a tree okay well that that's like more traditional way of valuing the content that you experience from the picture so the way i understand it is that ontology is the philosophical study of being or what is or what is real now i am not an expert in ontology but i'm familiar somewhat with semiotics. What I understand is that semiotics is about how we make meaning or what we call meaning making, whereas ontology focuses on what exists. 
Is that a fair description, or how would you describe the difference between semiotics and ontology? Well, I think semiotics are like a way of like providing uh, an explanation, an ontological uh, reasoning for how the image comes to exist. So, in like pictorial semiotics, generally, it would be, you would say, okay, it's, it's like that. What do you see in the picture? It's a tree, or it's like that tree right next to me there and there's there's a correlation that i can use to sort of you know reinforce that that tree exists but if it's it's not there then you're saying okay well that's just a type of a thing it's if it's categorizable into enough similar instances then it becomes like iconic versus like more material semiotic reading would be trying to understand the intention of how the machine operated to produce this thing that looks like a tree and then is that merely a function of the machine working as it's designed to, the internal workings of the camera, the sort of black box stuff that you don't, might not understand that's still operating in a predictable way versus like a more specific human intention to maybe make part of that process recognizable through maybe showing the pixel itself as part of the object to interpret in relation to the representational content of a tree somehow. And so it's like a more nuanced reading of the conditions that allow the picture to exist. And then if you go into like the habits about why people take so many pictures of trees that look similar to each other, then we're also probably looking at some sort of uh, systemic appreciation of iconographic content and then reproducing it knowingly or not for specific contexts for IG pages that want a lot of likes or something. So then there's like the cultural reinforcement that comes through how we use the machine. And so that's sort of, I think, how semiotics would, because I mean, I could get into it, you know, icon and index and symbols and how different people think differently about it. But like, I think generally it's, you know, having to consider the more mechanical and the social conditions that help to make a picture available to us. You just completed your research, so I'm quite curious about what the practical implications are f- of this study around image ontology. Or do I need to see ontology more as a philosophical domain? I mean, it would probably be relevant through how you fill the gaps in meaning and noticing how those gaps get filled. I mean, maybe it's a little bit introspective and autoethnographic at its, you know, in some ways, but it would be more like just to give context, what I was doing the research on was what I was doing some art practice on for six or eight years before that, mostly in South Korea. And it was about like, how would you know that you encounter a picture accidentally? And then if you do encounter a picture accidentally, then um, what do you experience in the void of meaning there? That is not there because it's not prescribed. So a found photograph, if you're walking down the street and then there's I mean, I could tell a story how it started, but like walking down the street and you see a picture on the street, that seems to be someone's personal picture. And then, okay, like this was intentionally taken of this person for a reason, but you'll never know the reason why. And you never know how and why it got here and why it wasn't valued in a certain way. And yeah, at the same time, it's also a very personal object. And so what do you do with that sort of friction that's caused when you encounter something that's both very personal, but also under conditions that you are black boxed? And I think partially what's interesting is you can use that process to kind of reflect on your, first of all, your own habit to make meaning from stuff. And then under, under what conditions would I want habitually project meaning onto things? And then where does that come from? Now, for semiotics, there is a method or framework. So you have the signifier and the signifies that forms the sign, and then you have the connotation and denotation of that sign. 
Is there a similar framework or protocol for image ontology? Mm. Yeah, in image ontology, you would, I mean, I think most people refer to uh, semiotician Charles Sanders Pierce, this American semiotician 100 years ago or so, who kind of divided up the way of thinking about the content into something that is more existentially grounded. That if you're reading meaning from the picture in a way that somehow evidences how it came to exist, you know, then it's an index of that thing. It's somehow directly indexical. It's one to one. It's A to A. It's like, well, what is that? It's a tree. It's that tree, you know, versus um, something that's more like a pictogram, you could say, of an event, you know, something that's stylized and that may be culturally specific, that may be readable under certain cultural conditions. And then something that actually like looks like the thing. What you just described, is that the ontological framework? Because that sounds quite similar to semiotics. Mm -hmm. That's the one that's like common that people have talked about. But that still depends on like thinking that it is possible to have a picture somehow like, I mean, it's always a mediated reading of when we look at pictures, you know, we, we just try to mitigate the conditions that might impact our interpreting of that content as true in the world. And so like, we're kind of coming from this sort of long bias, you could say, indexical truth bias they call, towards photography and the way we interpret those images. You know, since they saw the, the running horse being suspended in midair, that kind of like are foundational to like modern science in a way. And so in general, like, but for the average consumer of pictures, I think since the digital era and people have realized, okay, well, you can't really argue for that pictures have some indexical physical link to the real. There's no like light rays that burned into the film here to in the exact shape of what was in that physical space. It's this thing that's been recontextualized through a JPEG algorithm. And so, okay, like then if that's the foundation for pictures that we kind of experience on a day-to-day -day basis, if you really zoom out a bit, then like, you know, how do we develop a way of interpreting those images that have lost that kind of ground? We've removed ourselves from the gold standard <laughs> in a way, in economic terms. Mm -hmm. And then so like, how do you know the value of money? How do you interpret pictures in a more nuanced way? And now if we're going to be using whatever generative models to create images from personalized data sets, and so then we just get reinforcement of the things that are already in our data set, then in a way it's like a similar way of thinking about the systemic relationship between image production, image consumption, and then the design of the interfaces that we use to create the images. So in that process of reproduction, like how do we start to pay attention to these different uh, designs and intentional choices that have an impact on how we perceive value from that representational content from the picture of the tree? So how do we have a more complex reading about what's going on when you say, what's this a picture of? That's a pretty picture of a tree. Ah, but, and... What I understand is that you've investigated the ontology of found images or found photography. Can you tell me more about what was discovered during this exploration? Well, I investigated found photos, the ontology of found photographs, because I was working with these and I realized people had not really looked at them much before. You know, they hadn't like, there was no definitive book on found photographs or even in sort of a, a collection of the different research about found photographs or much research at all. So how do we think about these? How do they function in people's lives? You know, these sort of incomplete images or pictures, you know, pictures without a backstory 
open vessels a little bit like a stock photo that you can project into and then what's involved in that projection and then and i was interested in particularly my own kind of bias that i bring to it is that these from my personal art practice is that these could have potential use to help think more critically about the medium of picture reproduction and like uh, uh, the mediums that impact that process. And so I was basically had to do just a lot of reading about what would we consider to be a found picture under what conditions. And then eventually I, from doing some lit reviews and I had to sort of claim that we had to situate that picture in between an experience of the accident or some intentional placement. And I got there through interviewing a lot of pra local practitioners about how they experience, first of all, how do they counter these kind of pictures that are separated from their source? What do they think the value is? And have you been able to draw any conclusions of this research into the ontology of images or found images or found photography? Oh man, I should really have my uh, presentation out here because I, uh, I had it really well, I had it succinct, man. I had like, these are the findings, bam, bam, bam. This is how it addresses the original research question, bam, bam, bam. You know, this justifies the methodological choice, bam, bam. Here's recommendations for the future. And it was super nice, but uh, I was able to answer my research question, which was very generally like, what is the ontology of the found photograph, you know, and how do we consider its sort of scope of potential impactors on the experience of interpreting these incomplete pictures? And yeah, I said that they lend themselves to this like processual ontology, this way of thinking about the process, uh, focusing on, on the means by which the thing becomes because you're denied the origin of it. And then through repeated instances of encountering these kinds of pictures, you can kind of notice patterns in, in how people try to interpret them as well through workshops. And I got the pictures from making a, like a, a local archive from old broken cameras that I, I bought in Samtrepo that still had memory cards in them. And so I used these memory cards as first encounter. And me too, I made it so it was also my first encounter with these. And what types of pictures did you discover on the disposal cameras or the cameras and films you found in Hong Kong? Um, just a lot of mundane ones. People with their first uh, digital camera and taking pictures of going on vacation or maybe somehow navigating a night out socially. Sometimes they were like very specific for specific tasks, like person who works in like the water department or well, I don't know, or like a maintenance staff for a building who has to sort of like take pictures of uh, the recent construction job they did to show the boss it's finished. Things like this that were kind of occupationally specific. I can see why you have a personal interest in the ontology of found images for your personal art practice. But let's say, for example, how do I apply your findings and research to my practice? I think probably through recognizing like that what you're encountering has already been encountered before. And so, and then it's been shaped by the last time it was encountered and given a meaning. So like... I think the title of my thesis then was became Finding the Found Thing. Finding the Found. Something, something, something about the contextually reflective photograph or image. And basically that boils down to being able to interpret media in a more critical way. That, you know, you see this as a reproduction. You're finding something that's already been noticed in a very simple way. For example, if you're walking down the street and you find a photograph lying there, then, okay, you have to assess, okay, well, this just maybe fell out of someone's pocket and here we are and no oh, more questions than answers. And that's the beauty of it. And then if I take that photograph and I sell it for 20 euros on eBay, 
this is a found photograph. It's already been found. It's already been attributed value and you should want it, right? Yet otherwise it had no value. It was just trash on the street and it was no one's treasure and you're the one who just made value out of it through calling it something that's called a found photo. So in the reading of that experience, like just being able to differentiate between, you know, something that is happening that's without prior designed intent versus seeing that the physical outcome of that experience, like in photographic form as a photo being sold is already having value. Then you're buying a, a package to a, a resort. It's a prepackaged experience. I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact. The last supper is offered to you at zero cost. And if you like this show about art in Asia, Give this podcast a star rating or subscribe to this podcast channel. Many thanks and let's continue. Now, I also like to talk about AI or artificial intelligence because that's a domain you have a personal interest in as well. So can you tell me the relationship between your research and artificial intelligence? I think through, okay, like I can describe one initial paper I did with a friend of mine, partner, where... We were working with like before diffusion algorithms, there was like generative adversarial networks, a certain way of generating images, which is the way that it worked was a little bit different because it had like the way that the image would come to exist is there was a thing that was trying to generate the image from a certain amount of data. And then there was a thing that was trying to guess if that is or is not accurate, basically. So there's a thing that's trying to kind of fool uh, something that's trying to discriminate its truth or not truth, but it's accuracy. So anyway, we were working with that technology and taking many pictures of uh, shops, Hong Kong shops in Samshuipo. And the way we thought we could do work with it is to try to play with its, um, of its limits, maybe its inability to accurately reproduce the types of images that we, we feed into it. Because part of the problem of, of it is sometimes it would just hang, you know, it would just, one of these, the discriminator would sort of uh, outsmart the generator or vice versa, and it would just sort of produce the same thing over and over again. So we fed it like a big group of pictures from Samshui Po of, that I took walking along and how I would generally pay attention to Hong Kong shops in Samshui Po and once I'm walking along. Took it with the same camera, the same lens, the same focal length, and then fed them in into the GAN. And then basically it spit out a bunch of examples that were kind of amalgamations of similarity to what we inputted in the first data set. And then through that, we used it to see, oh yeah, you could actually learn about the way that you potentially represent Samshui Po photographically. You can see, oh, there's a certain kind of congruence and, you know, the image, it seems to be reproducing images from a certain focal distance, you know, a certain distance from the observer's perspective to the shop entrance, for example, or that maybe in the shop design themselves, you can see patterns in that, you know, there's usually like an aisle in the middle that's darker, darker toned and higher contrast to these two things on the side or something. And so you also get to see like how something is designed, the shop itself, but then also how you approach it how you image it itself. You can also start to read your own, your own camera use habits through it. And so that was one of the first papers we did. And then, but then what's also interesting is that like when diffusion models came out like the next year, you know, or started getting popular, then we realized, okay, well then no one has access to the original model that was trained on. And here we're dealing with sort of like incremental steps in image generation where it's relying on textual input more to sort of 
you know, modulate the random images that are produced in a diffusion model based upon the original data set. And so I went back to Samshipo and then I noticed this example of a shop that was designed to look old and it was really well designed. It was very well designed to look old in a way, but it was also like a speakeasy. It had like a secret entrance and you kind of pull, there's like a paint bucket where you're supposed to put coins in because it still functions like a normal shop where, you know, you can pay for a drink and on our system, you can put your money in the, and the shelves are all stocked with like old things that were made in that area or something. But really it's a speakeasy where you go to drink expensive liquor and you don't realize that. The point is, is that like, it's very subtle because like that kind of shop is still kind of surrounded by old shops. And who knows, it might've actually replaced an old shop and then replicated what the old shop looks like, you know? And so when you're reading this kind of picture, you're actually reading that this thing has already been noticed as being valuable. There's been enough visual examples of it to create a data set that designers could use to rely on to redesign this thing. So when you're looking at it, you're actually looking at an exist, something that's already been found. It's already been noticed as having value and then represented back to you. And then, you know, virtually it becomes like a virtual manifestation of the original thing, yet with a slightly different social function in this case. A few episodes back of The Last Supper, I talked about diffusion models before with, I think it was artist uh, and designer Ling Pei Ying. So, I know the very, very basic principles of a diffusion model, mm-hmm. but I just want to make sure that I do understand it correctly. So what I understand is that this model operates by reversing a diffusion process where new data is generated by reintroducing lost information with or through noise intervention. So the main concept revolves around injection random noise into the data and then reversing the process to retrieve the original data distribution from the noisy data. So basically the main idea of the diffusion model, the way I understand this, is to add random noise to data and then undo the process to get the original data distribution from the noisy data but not sure if I remember that correctly. So how would you describe what this diffusion model is? Oh, I think with diffusion models, to my very limited knowledge, like it involves a more incremental step-by-step process where you're, it's not a game of cat and mouse between a discriminator and a generator to kind of optimize each other in the creation of more and more accurate images from an original data set. But instead of diffusion model, it basically starts from, you could say like the full picture with a little bit of noise to something that's total, total noise. And you could say, okay, like in between this picture with a little noise and something that's total noise, let's say there's 50 steps, 50 increments, and that are kind of of the same distance to each other, of including noise in the picture. And so you say, okay, then I want to start, let's say from image 40, you know, so something that's like pretty noisy, but doesn't have, but still ha- might have a little hints of some original thing. And then from there, because like there's a, I guess Gaussian curves are like predictable, you know, and how you kind of like include the same amount of something, you can like trace your way back that it'll like, it'll predict how much noise was in the picture one step ahead of it. And then by comparing that and then doing that over and over again, it can find its way back 
to something that, would, that, that is noiseless or you know, has as much noise as the original picture prompt. But you modulate that with text, with text to it prompts. And so that's, that's how you keep it from being less random and what it comes back to when it basically creates a picture out of noise. So it's starting with the picture with a little noise, making total noise out of it and working its way back. Yeah, and then it, as you're modulating with text, it still might not be that great. So you can also give it more visual data. It can compare to like maybe a, a noiseless picture as well to help get it back to something more accurate. So do you know if the diffusion model is capable of understanding something that is not being fed into its data set? Mm-hmm. Or what I'm trying to say is that, for example, the diffusion model would be trained on a database with cats only. Yeah. And I would ask to make an image of a dog. Would it be able to do mm, it? I think so. Yeah, I mean, like, it depends how you prompt it as well. Like, if you train it on a model of cats or maybe a larger model of, I mean, a, a larger, like, data set of four-legged mammals with tails and ears, you know, that are about the size of a ottoman. I don't know. And so, <laughs> and so uh, or, or just all cats, and then say, okay, then, like, give a, a dog. You could say maybe with cat-like features such as, like, um, a certain amount of whiskers on its face, a fluffy tail that's two-thirds the length of its body, and it could come up with a dog from that. So maybe I'm going into a rabbit hole of something I don't really understand, but I'm really curious how that would work because don't you need a reference or at least a very small data set of a dog, otherwise you end up with a hallucination. Oh yeah, something that that is not probable. Yeah, I think, I mean, though the new ones, I mean, I'm not sure anymore. I mean, like in the beginning, it it happened a lot lot more often, but I think that the newer ones are tighter and tighter in a way that you wouldn't, you would get less and less of what you don't expect, basically. And I don't know how totally random it would be, like a, not even complete opposite, but something unexpected that you would hallucinate. I imagine that these hallucinations may be seen as errors in terms of coding, but these apparent glitches Mm. can also lead to some really novel ideas and very imaginative solutions. So what we call imagination in us human beings is similar to hallucinations in AI. So how do you encounter something that you really can't expect? kind of comes down to the encounter with a found photograph, a photograph that you find value in on a street or something where you can't trace it back to a specific source or you can't infer the causes for how it came to exist and exist for you. Maybe understanding or approaching a picture that comes out of a black boxed image generator could produce a similar kind of relationship or reaction to those pictures. Maybe you wouldn't value the little glitches that come from your Windows update or something, you know, in a way that like you wouldn't value it aesthetically, but you would value it for what it makes you think about. Like, how does this exist in relation to such a tight operating system that is so focused on seamless interaction? And then like, how do I value this, this glitch in that sense? Okay, one more question about AI and then we'll move on to your work as well. But I'm not sure if the following makes sense, but if AI is a rule-based machine, 
do you always get the same results if the rules and inputs are the same? For example, people have experiences and emotions that influences and impact how we understand the world around us and how we respond to it. So if I gave the same rule to someone, he or she will likely come up with something slightly different because of the experience they had the day before or the mood they have been in, even if I apply the same rules. Whereas a machine is not affected by this, not affected at least by mood as far as I'm aware of. So will it always come up with the same if the same rules are applied? Mm -hmm. You mean, I guess it depends if it's like a rule-based sort of, or a symbol-based uh, system, basically, where you you can trace the output to specific input and therefore kind of know how to predict the result versus one that set the parameters and then let it do its thing, but you're not able to observe it and how it gave you the thing necessarily. You're not able to interpret exactly each decision that was made and why. Now, let's talk more about your work. You also looked into the at-home experience. What exactly do I need to imagine with this? That's a great question. What does it mean? You tell me first, because I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> nice, uh, returning the question back to me. But if I were to describe and take the literal meaning of this, mm -hmm. I would say that it is the experience of being at home. Yeah, is it an internal experience that's reinforced through external physical objects? Do you have to like, you have that internal experience when you're in your external thing house that you call a home. And then so it's sort of the two had to be connected or is it something that's like still might be correlatable to external kind of stimuli or something, you know, or social circumstances, physical circumstances, contingencies that basically like put you in that state otherwise. And that was my original PhD topic because I was doing artwork on that for a while. And I thought, that's a little bit maybe too personal to spend five years on at this point. When we met the very first time, you just finished a kind of performance, or I'm not actually sure if it is a performance or a show at Hard House Workspace in Kennedy Town. It kind of was. It was, you could view it as a performance. You could also view it as an experimental film where instead of the film being pure documentation of project called a performance but yeah it was um basically around these the poetics that we saw in the act of preserving something and how do we like point to the act of preserving itself as having this sort of symbolic value that could be both shared but also very personal you know and so what we did was we put out an open call and we asked any local people who were interested who if they have a relationship with an object that they think only they value, and if they want to preserve that in a transparent cube of resin, then please like give us a little bit of the context of your interest in this and then come come join the project. So we had, well, we had a lot of people apply and then we chose a certain number of people. Basically, everyone met. There was a performative nature where we all wore lab coats a bit. And after having interviews with people, 
at first to find out what it is that they valued about, why they want to join this project, why this object, why are they doing this, why are they here? We basically like gave them an experience to entomb their object in resin as a group activity, but each person did it individually. But at the same time, we had this presentation angle where that, okay, this is you know highly personal, but it's also performative. And you can kind of get to that sensitivity through seeing how other people are replicating the same process that you're going through. Or also because we're wearing lab coats, like we're fake scientists, or that it was being filmed, the initial interviews, and then broadcast on a TV in a different room where other people were, you know, hanging out and eating and stuff. And, and so there was also this awareness that you're going to, that this is like a visual product. And then so after they put their stuff in the resin and then it dried, then we didn't show it to them necessarily. And then until we were ready for a revealing and then we asked people to come back and then we revealed it and got their initial reactions to seeing their object that was of highly personal value now forever entombed in where anyone, everyone can see it. And in a way it, what we were stressing or what we, what kind of came up through these second interviews as in re-encounters with our object were that what's poetic about this. I mean, initially is that to keep something safe, if that's your intention, you're separating yourself from it, you know, haptically forever, you know, your only experience of it will be from this smooth plasticky resin. Also that it's a highly personal object, but long after we're dead and gone, you know, this cube with this thing in it will still be there for 500 years or something. It's extremely dense, it's structurally sound material. And so how will someone value it 500 years from now? I mean, at the very least, thinking semiotically then, like they're just, it's a more materialistic reading where they're just viewing it as an intentional act. At some point in the past, someone thought that this used tissue was worth preserving in this brick of resin. And that alone, that intention alone, lets me sell it for a thousand dollars at my little shop <laughs> yeah and what kind of objects were participants bringing with them yeah actually we had several people apply with cameras and we had to choose the best one and uh but camera was a popular one and then there was um a golden bracelet there was a seashell there was several cassettes of instax photos there was a family name stamp there was a lego toy so there was a bar of soap with packaging from a refugee camp in Iraq. So there was a large variety and the intentions for bringing them was also really varied a lot. Let's also talk about the importance or impact of images, especially in today's media and advertising. We are being bombarded with them. And that's my personal viewpoint, but I think we can kind of agree that this is really increasing. It really has become even more prominent since the introduction of AI and machine learning, where creating false images or deep fakes is becoming really simple. You can see them mm -hmm. all the time on social media. So the consequence is that I personally treat every image with suspicion especially on social media, but also even the regular news. So the significance, or maybe a better word is mm -hmm. the trustworthiness 
and therefore the significance of an image or imagery mm. has declined for me. Absolutely. I think like I could totally see, I mean, in that situation, the picture is not enough. If I had that sensitivity like you have, and I consciously chose to manipulate the visual components of that picture to make something that I think looks cool, that I like how it looks in the awareness that it's not, there's no indexical truth there existentially to you know what existed in the world at that time. It's mediated, it's manipulated. Then I think then there's kind of two value streams associated with keeping that picture that for having me grab that picture out of a burning house, you know, because both it's still associated to some degree with what happened at that time. But then also it's associated with, it's just something that I created. I'm aware that it's a created thing. And I took my time to make it look aesthetically interesting for me and to potentially be an aesthetic, an experience that could be useful for a socially engaged project or something, whatever. The point is, is that like, there's a certain kind of attachment still there because I view it as a created it's an artifact of, of my relationship with creative, my creative practice. I'm not sure how to counteract the decline of images and whether or not we will arrive at a point that the vast majority of visuals is purely for entertainment and how we distinguish what is truthful or not. Or maybe what is real or not isn't even relevant as long as we believe it is true and real. Then I think you're probably in a con pretty contemporary relationship to image. I think you're well-stanced for how technology is gonna, can deliver images to us now. But then someone else could walk in the room and say, well then Oscar, how's it that you're not some nihilist and you've given up on all truth and everything is like designed to get you to react only. There's no sort of visual stimulus in the world that is that you can enjoy that's not predetermined algorithmically. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm a nihilist or not. I would personally say I'm probably not because I also believe that technology provides me at least, and I also believe other people, the opportunity to develop their own narrative, whether that's truthfully or not. I do see a trend where we create false or maybe ideal narratives of ourselves. For example, Instagram or Facebook or any other social media like LinkedIn, we all have those filters and deliberately publish specific stories while also very consciously, I've, I think most of them are, are very conscious about this, also avoiding certain events mm -hmm. of life that we do not want to post publicly. So basically, people can create their own kind of dream yeah. and multiple avatars and personas of mm -hmm. ideal life. Totally. But then to get to that awareness of like valuing the sort of multiple instances of a thing, it's almost like it's a different sensitivity involved it, because we're watching it's more like a second order i think they call it second order observation where we're observing systems that are observing systems we're observing things that are observing things right and so that automatically puts us into looking for patterns within how things are observed rather than a spotlight focus on one particular instance of observation and i think that makes us think maybe potentially more critically about how it is that images keep being observed 
and re-observed and then re, you know, re-outputted and then experienced again under slightly different conditions. And so it's just a different sensitivity to what's the visual stimuli that's manifesting in daily life. It's not like the, you know, the early film of the train robbery. The person points the gun at the end, you know, and I've read the audience and the whole audience was said to like jump up in fear that they're going to get shot. Maybe it's liberating that we can demonstrate the multiplicity of ourselves, that we do not have to live our lives according to, let's say, one label or one expected authentic persona. A different role is uh, coming out of you under certain conditions. You know, a, a different manifestation of Oscarness is coming out under dad conditions than under podcast conditions. I mean, I, I mean, like, why do we think it shouldn't be like that? I mean, yes, different manifestations depending on the context and my mood and environment. So the environment we live in now allows us, although as a group that may struggle with this and maybe even disagree with this. But the notion of authenticity is evolving in that we change all the time. I mean, the world is in constant flux. So there is not a single form or embodiment of authenticity. We are always authentic, at least all the time, whoever we are, if that makes sense. But isn't that the sort of the ultimate control in a way? You know, that's sort of the cultiness of the social scene that makes you think you have to exist on this channel only. If we have a shared experience of people having multiple aspects of their personality come out in different situations, then, yeah, we're alone together. We're all in our own little worlds manifesting different social roles through different personality traits. Yet, we're doing that together. We're aware that we're all, have, we're all doing that. Well, I wonder if people are aware of this and if they accept that we are in constant performative mode, either consciously or unconsciously. Well, no, they don't. I guess it can be really confusing for people, right? The way I behave at work will be different than how I communicate at a private dinner with friends. And again, it is probably different when I meet family and maybe the way I talk to you today. Right. Social performativity, that's, that gets you out of that conversation. And not to, no, I mean, to like fully be in the role, fully be that as a part of yourself that you're letting come out under these kind of conditions, right? I mean, that's allowing yourself to occupy a broader space of what it means to be you, you know, and who's someone else to say that? <laughs> that that's not you. No, no, under those conditions. Yeah, be like that. Okay, anything else you want to highlight or announce, Marty? Yes, yes. Uh, Friday, I'm actually presenting a set of art books to that I was uh, invited to join this program with WMA and Hart House. And basically, yeah, to provide another transformation of these found photos from memory cards, in this case, into, into book form. And so I designed the books in a way to try to play with this multiple way of making meaning from photos. Like we talked about, the materialistic way, maybe through the metadata, and then the purely representational way, that's a beautiful tree. And so I found examples of each memory card, uh, of certain memory cards that I thought had very specific combinations of pictures on them that could um, help the reader maybe be aware how you could read a little as mini data set of pictures through a stereotypically gendered lens or similar. 
And so, yeah, I'm just, after I leave here, I'm going to uh, do some quality control on the prints and then, um, yeah, doing that. And then wrapping up the film that we made from the Poetics Project and then submitting that to a experimental film festival and yeah, gonna be working on maybe a future cinema project. And yeah, so I'm, yeah, interested. Right, let me ask you the final question of this podcast. And you know this is coming, of course, of The Last Supper. So if you were to have your last supper, who would you invite and what would you talk about at your final meal? It depends what food they're carrying with them, probably. Let's say that. Like, I was just in Calcutta a few weeks ago and I saw this Mother Teresa shrine. And speaking of nuns, and it had this really good quote about, you know, like, love is what you... You know, that she thought she would be judged not about how much good stuff she did in this life, but like how much love she put into all the small stuff she did. I'm like, okay, well, whatever you think about Mother Teresa and Catholicism and, you know, the post-colonial scene in Calcutta, at the very least, yeah, I could dig that. So, man, I'm trying to get out of the question. But uh, (laughs) let's just say, um, I really don't have an answer. Can we splice it in later? Can I give a little bit of thought to it? You could just put like a little bit of like, you know, Marty audio from like a WhatsApp message. Uh, I would put the barber. Yeah, I would want to talk to him. I've got to, you know, go to the grave looking pretty. I don't know. Many thanks, Marty, for coming or walking over to my place on Lama Island. Congratulations with your PhD, and I'll see you soon again. Thank you. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you for listening to today's guest of The Last Supper, artist and researcher, Dr. Marty Miller. Before I go and log off, I want to say that I will take a two-month break in March and April and will resume publishing my weekly podcast episodes from May onwards. More information about each episode can be found in this podcast description and on the website www.thelastsupper.asia. And before you go, you can follow The Last Supper on Instagram at thelastsupper.asia. And also, if you have any questions, suggestions and new subjects about art in Asia, feel free to contact me on Instagram or on my website www.thelastsupper.asia.